Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful privilege we have to gather together this morning in the name of your Son, whom to know is life eternal. And his life, Father, is our light through this spiritually dark world. May we, this morning, as we look at you being the vine, Jesus, and uh, Father, you being the husbandman, may we be so connected to him, each and every one of us, as a branch, that uh, his words are abiding in us and he is abiding in us, that we might all bear fruit for your glory, and that we might be cleansed by the, we are cleansed by the blood of your Son, And we thank you for the pruning of your word that you do on us every single week when we come here. And so we would ask that again you would do a work in our lives, Father, through this study, through the word pruning us. And that this work would leave us clean for growth. May there be this day a a flourishing of all these branches here together this morning. That truly this place would be a fertile place for spiritual growth and for production. And that the seeds in our fruit, because we know all fruit has seeds, true fruit has seeds in it, that the seeds would reproduce other fruit in our children's lives and in our grandchildren's lives and in our husbands and our parents and other family members and loved ones who we come into contact with, who are in our circles of influence, that our seed would reproduce in them. And may this place this morning, we ask, Father, be glorious, and may it be pleasing to you because it is tended by your loving care and because we do maintain an obedient abiding in your Son that makes his life and makes his majesty apparent through us because of all things, that is what we want most of all, that we might abide in him and his life might be apparent to others in us and that we would bear much fruit. For your kingdom and your glory. We pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. The vine and the branches, part one. We're only going to cover three verses this morning. John 15, verses 1 to 3. Now, because of the Lord's words, if you look at the last verse of chapter 14, when the Lord said, Arise, let us go hence. Because of those words, Bible scholars believe that the contents of John 15 and John 16 were spoken by Jesus to his 11 remaining apostles as they left the upper room. That's what he means when he says, arise, let us go hence. So they got up and left the upper room and made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was outside the city of Jerusalem to the east. There was a lot more for him to say to his men by way of instruction before his arrest. And there was still a very important priestly, high priestly prayer for him to pray on their behalf. And so he, and on behalf of his yet future church as well, so he left the confines of the upper room before Judas would arrive there with his entourage of Jews, chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, and the temple guard and the Roman soldiers. You know, Judas knew that's where he left the Lord, so that's where he took the entourage of of the arresting party. So the Lord left the upper room so Judas wouldn't get him until he finished his farewell discourse. His men are still troubled. His men are still confused, even after hearing, but not understanding, the ten comforts of chapter 14. But it was time for him to begin his instruction part of his final sermon to them. 
And he did so, as he often did, by using an analogy. He began his words of instruction with what you could call a metaphor or an analogy, figurative language. Some call it a parable. This one is a three-part analogy, and it regards himself as a true vine, his father as a husbandman, and his followers as branches. Although, with regard to the branches, (laughs) it gets confusing. The Lord refers to various kinds of branches. There are branches, if you look, I'm going to read the verses in a minute, but if you'll just look at the beginning part of verse 2, there are branches that bear not fruit, which means no fruit. Then there are branches that do bring forth fruit, which the vine dresser purges or cleanses or prunes. And that's at uh, the end of verse 2. He does that so they can bring forth more fruit. And then there are branches which do bring forth much fruit. We don't see that here, but it's in verses 5 and 8, which we'll talk about next week. Much fruit. Six times in the eight verses regarding this metaphor or analogy or parable, six times he speaks of the matter of fruitfulness. He speaks of no fruit, of fruit, of more fruit, and of what? Much fruit. Now, with regard to the branches, although it sounds complicated, it sounds like there's a lot of different kinds of branches, really it boils down to the fact that there are two kinds of branches. There are branches that produce no fruit, and there are branches that produce fruit. You know, the quantity is different, but they're either bearing or they're not bearing, which means... They're either saved or not saved. They're either connected to the vine or they're not connected to the vine. Now, what's interesting is that on their way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, they probably would have passed by the temple. It was late at night, so there weren't people out. Everybody was in bed sleeping. But they would walk by the temple and see the great temple doors of, of that temple, Herod's temple. And on those great doors was a golden vine engraved on it. Golden vine that they said was so huge that the grapes on that vine were the size of a man. So just the grapes were six feet tall. And so it's interesting to speculate that maybe as the Lord and his 11 men passed by that door, he pointed to it and said, I am the true vine. And if not that, they also, Bible scholars say, they would have in root at least passed some vineyards because vineyards were a plenty in Israel. And so he may have pointed to some vines growing in a vineyard somewhere and said, I am the true vine. That just makes it interesting to think about, right, that he did that. Anyway, what he is doing now in his farewell discourse is preparing his men for their future ministry of bearing fruit. He turns from comforting them in their distress about his departure to instructing them about their responsibility to him during his absence from them. So the comfort is over with, guys. (laughs) No more comfort. It's time for instruction. He's told them what he would do for them. And now he tells them what they need to be doing for him. He wants them to think in terms of productivity. They're not to simply sit up on their rooftops twiddling their thumbs and waiting for his return. Are they? What are they supposed to be doing in the meantime before his return? They're supposed to be producing fruit. 
They're not to just simply waste their time. So he challenges them to think about the next stage of their discipleship. Now, this is a new thought for them. This is a new thought for many people who initially get saved. You know, when you initially get saved, you're on such a high, you know, that you're all excited about um, being born again and for by faith and grace, you know, where you're saved and it's not of your own works. It's of all of God and you've been saved from hellfire and you don't have to worry about death, etc. And you're just so excited about what the Lord has done for you. Most new converts aren't thinking about what they need to now do for the Lord. They forget about that next verse, you know, in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, that it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But what's it say in verse 10? Where we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. There's the fruit. Okay, so they hadn't been thinking about this, but they needed to start to think about bearing fruit. It's time for them to launch out, to use another analogy, (laughs) it's time for them to launch out into the deep and let out their nets for an amazing catch of fish. Much fruit. And would the apostles produce much fruit? Guess what? They're still catching much fruit in their nets today as you and I learn about them and read some of their writings, inspired writings from God's word. It's time that they produce some fruit in their own works, uh, in own lives. Isn't that what he had just said they would be doing? In chapter 14, verse 12, when he said that they would do even greater works than he had done. So the Lord's next teaching is about being fruit-bearing branches. It's the thing that really every true disciple should desire. There's no one who has the eternal life of Jesus Christ coursing through his or her veins who should not have an innate desire to bear fruit for their Savior's glory. If you don't have a desire to bear fruit for him, something is wrong. Something is wrong. There is something just as wrong and as unnatural about a supposed Christian who doesn't care to bear fruit for his Savior's glory as there is a little child who doesn't want to grow. Have you ever met a little child who wants to stay small? That's not natural. Now, you may have met some like that, but most children, when they, I know my children, as soon as they had a birthday, they'd the first thing in the morning, they'd run and measure themselves. So they think I'm an, another year older, so I must be taller. They always wanted to grow. There's un, something unnatural when a Christian doesn't want to grow. If they don't have that desire, it's due to one of two reasons. Number one, they are either a disobedient, quenching the spirit Christian, or number two, they're not a Christian. They're a professing only Christian. So, in today's look at part one of our study, The Vine and the Branches, we're going to find the Lord's seventh and final great I Am statement. Remember in John's Gospel, he makes seven I Am declarations that have to do with analogies. He makes some more I Am statements, but they're not analogies. He just says, I am. (laughs) But the analogies, there's seven, which is the perfect number, and this is the seventh one. What are the other ones he has spoke? John's gospel, of course, is the gospel that stresses the deity of Jesus Christ. And, of course, whenever the Lord says, I am, what is he saying? I am deity. I'm God, because God's name, as he introduced himself to Moses, is I am that I am. What were the ones he has already said so far? Well, he started out by saying in John 6, I am the bread of life. 
Then he said in, uh, I have to peek, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. There were two in John 10 when he said, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. In John 11, standing outside Lazarus's tomb, he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then we saw in chapter 14 of this upper room discourse, his great triple I am statement when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now the seventh one, he says, I am the true vine. Now, one thing we do should do when we consider this final declaration is look at it in light of the Jewish Old Testament eyes. It's always important to look at everything in light of what the Jews would think about something like this, what the Old Testament has to say about a statement like this, because it is against the Old Testament background of Israel as God's vine that Jesus made this I am the true vine statement. So first of all, what I'm going to do is read just our three verses for today's study, and then we're going to start doing some Bible hopping. So is like drill time. <laughs> You're going to be all over the Old Testament, but first of all, you'll be in Isaiah chapter 5. So if you want to go there while I'm reading the verses or look what the verses or do both things, you're multitasked, right? Women can do more than one thing at the same time. So look with me as I read John 15 verses 1 to 3 while you're also finding Isaiah, okay? Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Verse 2, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And that word in Greek, taketh away, is eri, eri, like airy. Oh, it's airy in here. You could say it that way. You don't have to roll your R's. Airy, okay? Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he eri. And every branch that beareth fruit, he katheri. He's a poet. He did that on purpose. He was rhyming. Did you know Jesus was a poet? Best poet there ever has been. And I wanted to say that to you because you don't see that in the English. You would never know that taketh away and purgeth rhyme. But he does something else that's really clever that you would miss if you just look at your English Bibles. After he says every branch that beareth fruit, he catheri it that it may bring forth more fruit. He says, now ye are katheroi. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. He's being very clever here. He's not only rhyming, but he's saying one word, katheri, which, by the way, is where those of you named Catherine, again, two weeks in a row talking about our name, Catherine. Katheri, the first part, uh, kather, comes from to purge or to purify, pure. And you know, erini, the last part in Greek, our name says katherini, means erini, means what? Peace. So you put the two together and you've got pure peace. <laughs> oh, what a name to live up to. Um, anyway, so he's saying he's doing he's doing word plays here. And it's really it's really interesting and it's very cute and it's very clever. And we miss it all in English. So he says, now are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. OK, now that's what he says. And let's look at Isaiah. I was having you get there and I forgot to get over there. Isaiah five contains a passage which is very well known by the Jewish people. Isaiah verses 5, verses 1 to 7 is known as the Song of the Vineyard. The Song of the Vineyard. 
the Lord says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard. Now, who is the well-beloved? It speaks of God. Well-beloved has a vineyard. God has a vineyard. Hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth what? Wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned. Uh Uh-oh, pruning is good for the vine. If the vine dresser doesn't prune it, that's not good. He says, they won't be pruned nor dig, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment or justice. He wanted some fruit. He wanted to see justice. And what did he get? But behold, oppression. He looked for righteousness. But what did he find? Behold a cry. They were oppressing their own people. There was no righteousness. So he says in verse 8, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field there, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In these verses, and you might want to hold your finger there and uh, go to, let's see, Jeremiah. Hold your finger in Isaiah and go over to Jeremiah. But in these verses... We just read how Jehovah God did everything possible to give his well-beloved Israel the perfect conditions for her productivity. He did everything for her. But when he looked for fruit from her, he was grieved because she brought forth nothing but wild grapes. So he said he would take away her protective hedge. He would break down her protective wall. She would be trampled upon. She would be laid to waste. He would no longer prune her. He would he would allow briars and thorns to grow around her. And he would hold back rain. Why? Why would he do all that? Because he wanted the fruit of justice and righteousness. And in their place, she uh, had even oppressed her own people. She became selfish. We've learned this in our Life of Christ study. How the Jews had become so selfish and so greedy and so unjust. So what would he do to her? End of verse 8. He says he would place her alone in the midst of the earth. Whoa. What has happened to Israel? Has she been placed alone in the middle of the earth? You know where Israel is located as far as the land masses on this planet are concerned? She is in the belly button of the earth. And she is alone, is she not? Even her one last lone friend, United States, Egypt, everything. I mean, she's alone. He has kept his word. Well, over in Jeremiah 2, I know I didn't tell you what chapter, did I? Jeremiah 2, verse 21, we learn basically the same thing that we just read in Isaiah 5. God says to Israel, I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, completely, a right seed. 
You see what that tells us? There was nothing wrong with the seed that God planted. So he says, How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? And over, I won't have you turn there, but over in Hosea 10, verse 1, we read this. It says, Israel is an empty vine. And it says, she brings forth only fruit for herself. Do you know that a vine does not produce fruit so that the vine can eat the fruit? Do you know branches don't produce fruit so that the branches can enjoy the benefit of the fruit? But that's what Israel was doing. Israel the vine was eating her own fruit, her wild grapes. Why does a vine produce fruit or branch produce fruit? For the benefit of others, right? It's supposed to be for the benefit of others and to give glory to God. But she instead was bearing her own fruit for herself. And so these passages that we've read are all about Israel's failure to produce good fruit. And what is God's response to her fruitlessness? Well, for one thing, we know that he was very, very long-suffering with her. It isn't like as soon the first time he went to look for fruit and he didn't find any, he judged her, did he? He was extremely long-suffering, and he kept on warning her over and over and over again to produce fruit or else she would face judgment. How did he warn her? Do you remember the Lord's parable of the evil vine dressers? The owner of the vineyard kept sending his servants to warn her to produce fruit. Who were his servants? The prophets. And over and over again they warned her, and what did they do? They persecuted. They didn't want to hear the message of the prophets. They persecuted them, and they even killed some of them, didn't they? But God was still very long-suffering. He didn't judge her. He could have, but he didn't. And finally, he sent her his son. The owner of the vineyard sent his own son and said, Surely they will reverence him and listen to him. And yet, what did they do to even him? They did what the evil vine dressers were getting ready to do in our life of Christ study. They're about to kill him. They did exactly what Jesus said they would do. And when he shared that parable, the, the, he was speaking to the Jews, the religious rulers, and they didn't get it until the very end. They finally got it that he was speaking of them as the evil vine dressers. And when they got it, it infuriated them so much that they wanted to kill him. <laughs> I mean, they wanted to do exactly what he had just predicted that they would do. And so, but he was very, very long suffering. But what did Jesus finally say that uh, what would happen to these evil vine dressers in punishment? He said that the kingdom of God would be taken from them and given instead to a people who would produce fruit for God. Now, over in Romans 11, and I do want you to, Romans 11, I don't think is even mentioned in your notes. But I do want you to go home and read Romans 11 very carefully. You'll be confused, but it gives some clues about what the Lord is saying in John 15, verses 1 to 3. But in Romans 11, 17, we learn that some of the branches broken off of the wild olive tree. Now, Israel is represented by a vine, and she's also represented by an olive tree. And in this Romans 11, she is spoken of as an olive tree, and some of her branches are broken off. And in verse 20 of Romans 11, we find out why those branches were broken off. Why? Anybody got that verse? 
because of unbelief. You see, Israel is the olive tree, has all her branches, some, a lot of those branches, no fruit. So they're taken away. They're broken off. They were on the vine or on the olive tree, but they're broken off because of unbelief. And yet it says somewhere in there that there's always a remnant. There are always, you know, Israel always has a believing remnant of Jews. So there's always branches that really did take and are producing some fruit. Well, um, probably the most appropriate passage to turn to now would be Psalm 80. So I do want everybody to turn to Psalm 80, if you would, because there here we'll find an advancement in the teaching on this vine situation. Psalm 80. Oh, can't find it. About the middle of the, my Bible somewhere. There we go. Psalm 80. And look with me in verses 8 and 9. The psalmist, and this time it is not David, so I can't say David, but the psalmist uses the same imagery that we read in Isaiah. He says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it, what, the vine? Who did God bring out of Egypt? No. He did bring Jesus out of, yes, there's so much similarity. He did bring Jesus out of Egypt too, didn't he? But this is speaking about when he brought Israel out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, and he took all the heathen out of the land of Canaan, and he planted Israel in the promised land, you know, his vine. He took his beloved vine and he planted her, got rid, rid of all the, the thorns and briars and planted Israel in the middle of, the, of Canaan. And then it says, Thou preparest room before it and did cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. So the vine God brought out at the time of the Exodus was Israel. So who is the vine dresser or the husbandman in this uh, psalm? Who's the one who brought Israel out? God. The vine dresser is God. Okay, he also happens to be the owner of the vineyard. But he brought her out, and he is the same one who's the husbandman in Jesus's analogy in John 15. He's the Lord God. God delivered Israel from her bondage in Egypt. He's the one who cast out the heathen from the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he's the one who very carefully planted Israel in that land. Why did he do all that? Because he wanted his treasured vine to produce fruit for his glory. He wanted her to reach the rest of the nations of the world for him. Well, in verses 10 and 11 of this psalm, It goes on to talk about the expansion of the United Kingdom of Israel under the reigns of David and Solomon. When did Israel reach her greatest potential? Under King David and King Solomon. But then, and I'm not going to read those verses, but then in the next verse, which would be uh, verse 12, he asks, the psalmist asks God why he has broken down Israel's hedges and laid her to waste, and why he has let wild beasts devour her. You see, by the time the psalmist wrote this psalm under divine inspiration, God's predictions back in Isaiah chapter 5 and in Hosea 10 and in Jeremiah and also over in Ezekiel 15, which we didn't turn to, but those, all of those predictions had already come to pass. Pass by the time the psalmist wrote this. So now she is laid to waste, and the psalmist asks why. Um, He's bemoaning the fact, 
And so he prays. In verse 14, the psalmist prays to the Lord. He asks him to return. Let's look at that. He says, return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch, notice that word, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let, here's his prayer, let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. Look back at verse 15. The branch that thou madest strong for thyself. Look at verse 17. Son of man who madest strong for thyself. Who is the branch? The son of man. They're one and the same. The branch is the son of man. And then the psalmist goes on in his prayer and says, So will not we go back from thee, quicken us. Quicken us means make us alive. Give us life, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and what? We shall be saved. This is an amazing verse. I don't know what the Jewish people did with this verse, what the Jewish religious leaders did with this. Did you notice how the inspired psalmist jumped from one subject to another? One minute, he's talking about the destruction of the vine, right? And then suddenly, he's talking about an individual. And who is that individual? The branch, a branch, and the son of man, both of which the Jewish people understood were messianic titles. They understood that those words referred to the coming Messiah. So what they did with this, you know, I don't know, but it's amazing. And he prays to come to us, O Lord of hosts. Send the Son of Man, quicken us. We'll call upon your name, and we will be saved. All right, now would you, did I tell you to stay in Isaiah? Maybe those of you that were listening real carefully kept your finger in Isaiah, because now I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 11 this time. Isaiah chapter 11. This contains a prediction of hope. For Israel. Is God going to answer that psalmist prayer? Yes, one day he will. He hasn't yet. Israel has not yet been saved corporately, but she will be one day. Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel shall be saved. It won't be till the end of the tribulation, but she will be saved as a nation. All right, in Isaiah um, 11... This contains that prediction of hope. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Who was Jesse? David's father. Okay, a rod is going to come out of the stem of Jesse. And what? A branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Him. The branch is a him. And did you notice the word branch is capitalized this time? Did you notice that? Capital B. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, this branch, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The branch is capitalized and the branch is a him. Why? Well, because this branch is a messianic reference. It's a title for the coming Messiah. And this is important to see because it is telling us that this branch is no new vine. The branch is not a new vine. He is a rod out of the stem of the old vine. 
You know, when you cut a vine down, what is still in the ground? The roots and the stump. And what does that mean? It will still it will come back to life. Now, here is a rod out of the stem, out of the root. And where? what family does it come out of? Jesse. You know, he's the, he's the uh, son of David. The Messiah would be the son of David. Um, but he'd also be the Messiah. And that's what he kept trying to tell them. All right, so he's out of the stem of Jesse, David's father. The vine, Israel, may have been cut down and laid to waste, but its root is still in the ground. This is important because there are a lot of churches that don't teach this. A lot of churches say that God has removed Israel and he is kaput, finished with her. That's it. And the church has taken her place and he's done with Israel. That's not true. That is not true. That is not what Old Testament scripture teaches. That's not what New Testament scripture teaches. That's called replacement theology, that she's been replaced with the church. Well, she's been temporarily laid aside, and the church is now his main source for fruit. But he is not finished with her. All his promises to the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob, they're going to be fulfilled one day. All right, anyway, let's go to Jeremiah 23.5, where we learn more about this branch. No, you're done with Isaiah. Go to Jeremiah 23, 5. I have a little music while you're turning there. (laughs) In Jeremiah 23, 5, I'm going to go ahead because of time. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And what else have we learned about this branch? And a king. He's going to be a king. This branch is going to be a king. And he shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice. There's the fruit the Lord wanted. Lord God. He will execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved. When this king finally reigns on his throne and there's justice in this world, Judah, Israel will be saved. There you have it. Old Testament proof. And Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called. Now notice this is all in capitals. The Lord our righteousness. This branch, this root out of of David, the stem of Jesse. Uh, This king is the Lord our righteousness. And he shall bear the fruit God has been looking for. Universal justice and righteousness. Now, one more place to turn. One of the last Old Testament prophets, Zechariah. Zechariah gives us additional information about the branch. If you look at Zechariah 3.8, God is speaking through his prophet to Joshua, who was the high priest at this time in Israel. And God says, behold... This is Zechariah 3.8. Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Notice, branch is now all capital. It's like he's getting closer and closer to coming. At first, branch was just all small letters. Then branch was a capital B. And then we have branch all capitals. He says, I will send forth my servant, the branch. Now, in Zechariah 6.12, just go over three more chapters real quick. 6.12, this is the last of the Old Testament branch passages. The last one. Zechariah 6.12. It says, and where did we hear these words? Behold the man. Who said that? No. Who said behold the man? Who? Yes. 
Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Remember after he had scourged Jesus and he looked horrible and they had, you know, mocked him and he took him out before the crowds and said, behold the man. Kind of mockery. He did not know he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. <laughs> it's right out of Zechariah six twelve. Behold the man whose name is the branch, all capital. And he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. This branch again is a king and he shall be what else? A priest upon his throne. King and priest never allowed before in all of Israel. You couldn't be a king and a priest, but this branch will be both. So now we have looked at enough Old Testament passages to put this whole thing together. You can go back to John 15, all right? Israel was planted in the ground by God, the vine dresser, the owner of the vine. He cleared out all the other growth in that land, the heathen people, so that she, Israel, the vine, might be rooted in the land to produce something for the glory of God. But centuries later, after a lot of patience, there's still nothing but wild grapes. So God cut her off at the roots. But there is the stump in the ground and out a part of that stump named after the family of Jesse comes a branch. A branch who is the son of man. He is a king. He is a priest. He is the, the God's servant. And he is the Lord our righteousness. And the ultimate end of all of that is going to be fruit for which God has been searching. Righteousness universal righteousness and justice and peace. And now listen to Jesus in John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husband. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And here's where the apostles probably had a little bit of an advantage over you and I. They'd been saturated with Old Testament. They knew Israel was the vine. They knew these passages. And when he said that, they probably got it faster than we did. We had to do all this research to get it. But you know what has happened here? The branch has become the vine. The branch has become the vine. Just like the good shepherd, there's, there's so much beauty in the Lord's analogies. The good shepherd became the lamb, right? The lamb who died for all the good shepherds. Here we have the branch becoming who is the vine. The branch is actually the true vine. And his father is the husbandman. These Old Testament passages are fulfilled, except for the part where all Israel will be saved one day. From henceforth, he is the true vine. And in the place of the evil vine dressers, his father is the good vine dresser. Israel was imperfect, but the Lord Jesus is perfect in all ways. Israel was the type. Right? Jesus is the reality. Since Israel failed to fulfill God's purpose in bearing fruit for his glory, she has been temporarily set aside. And the Lord's kingdom program has been entrusted to a new people. A people, a body of believers known as the church. The church. We have been grafted on to the true vine, haven't we? Remember those old branches, the unbelieving Jews were broken off and taken away. And in their place, grafted into the vine or the olive tree, are branches, the church, that make up the church. The church now has the special privilege of carrying out God's program and bearing fruit for him during this time of Israel's disfavor. 
True believers in Christ are the branches who both abide in and abound for the true vine. But let's not forget the psalmist's prayer of Psalm 80, where he said, you know, return to us. Will the Lord return the true vine? He will return to them, and he will shine upon them his countenance, and they will call out to him, and they will be quickened, and they will be saved. Okay, so we've discussed the fact that Jesus was representing himself as the true vine in this analogy, and God the Father is represented as the vine dresser. How many of you know some man named George? Say, how does that tie in? You know George, don't you? Did you marry to a George? Yeah. Raise your hands again. George. Okay, you can go home and tell your Georges that their name means farmer in Greek. That's not really exciting, is it? I don't know. Maybe it is. It means vine dresser or husbandman or one who tills the ground. Gorgos is a Greek word. Their name is Greek root. Means uh, uh, Anyway, that's the word. If you could see John 15 in Greek, that's what it would say right there. Uh, would be Jorgos. My father is the Jorgos, <laughs> which is nice, you know, same name as the father. All right. So anyway, the one who plants, fertilizes, waters a vine is God the father. And he cares for it by removing fruitless branches and pruning the other branches that are producing fruit so that they will produce even more fruit. Now, everybody agrees. All the Bible scholars agree about the identity of the first two parts of this analogy. Everyone agrees, because, I mean, you have to, that Jesus is the vine. He said it, didn't he? I am the true vine. No doubt about that. And he also goes on and says, and my father is the husband. So everybody, of course, everybody agrees with that. Where the problems come in is with the branches. Not really so much problem with the branches that produce fruit. We know the branches that produce fruit and more fruit and much fruit are true Christians. And we don't have a problem with the branches in verse 6, where he says, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. We have no problem. None of the Bible scholars have a problem with knowing that the branches that don't abide at all are cast out and burned. Those speak of non-Christians. Where we have the problem is in verse 2, the beginning phrase where it says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And oh my, you would not believe how many different interpretations there are as to who those branches are. What makes it difficult is the Lord says, Every branch in me, in me, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. So you got a branch in Christ, but a branch is not bearing fruit. So how do you mesh the two? Well, I had quite a time studying all this, so now it's your turn (laughs) to scratch your heads as I give you just some of all the various interpretations there are. I'm going to give them, I'm going to throw them at you. You're going to be confused probably. I'm going to give you reasons for why this is a good one or a bad one, and I'm going to let you decide in your homework which one that you like. And now, when you read your notes, you're going to find that not all of this is in there because as I've studied, I've learned more, and so in some of these positions I've changed my mind on, and so it's going to get really confusing. All right, but here we go. There is one view about this that, oh, and first of all, before I say that, let me tell you something. One, an, an interpretation rule when it comes to Scripture, this rule is very important. 
you always, always interpret what is unclear by what is clear. Okay, so if you have a passage like this, that's actually an analogy or a parable or a metaphor. And sometimes when we find things like that, you know, every little piece of it doesn't exactly fit. You know, you don't really learn doctrine from parables and analogies. You learn principles. But when you have an unclear passage of Scripture, you interpret it in light of other passages of Scripture that are clear. All right? So, one view regarding the fruitless branches here is of, of John 15, 2a, is that they symbolize Christians who lose their salvation. Now, you can see how people who believe a Christian can lose his or her salvation would take a verse like this and run with it, right? Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he removes. He takes them away. However, this contradicts everything in Scripture that is clear about the eternal security of the believer. We just had an example of that last week when we looked at, what was it, John 14, 16, where he says, um, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you how long? Forever. A true person who receives the Holy Spirit has the Holy Spirit forever. Forever. A physical birth only occurs once, right? You're only born once from your mother's womb. Same thing with a spiritual birth. You're only born once. You cannot be unborn physically. Can you ever be unborn? No. You're here forever. (laughs) You know, and you'll spend eternity one place or another, but you're here forever. You can't be unborn, and neither can a person be unborn spiritually. At the time of our new birth, what do we receive? We receive eternal life because we receive God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. If it wasn't eternal life, why wouldn't he say that we receive uh, temporary dependent on our own ability life? How do you like that one? I don't like that one either. And that would take us right back to works, wouldn't it? We're saved the first time by grace, but then every other time we get resaved, it would have to be by our own works. So it goes right back to works. And it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And then what about some of these are just some of the promises that we hear from the Lord about the eternal security of the believer. I could go on and on. I have at least 50 to 100 reasons of why I believe from Scripture the eternal security of the believer. But what about this verse? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Secure in the two hands of God the Son, God the Father. What about this? He who comes to me I will in no wise cast out, take away, throw out. And on and on we could go. Because I live, ye shall live also. So I disregard this view completely. You can disagree with me, but I've got better reasons than you do. So nanny, nanny, nanny. (laughs) My grandchildren get in trouble if they say that, nanny. Maybe one day when I'm dead and I won't have to worry about it. Now, another perspective on the fruit, fruitless branches <clears throat> is that they are Christians who commit the sin unto death. That they are in the vine, in Jesus, but they commit the sin unto death and they are taken away, you know, early. They're, they're kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. They were really Christians, but they lied to the Holy Spirit and so they were removed immediately. Wouldn't that have been something to have been in that church service? 
Anyway, um, or, you know, it says if you take the Lord's Supper unworthily, he might, the Lord might take you home early, you know, early death. So some say that this is speaking about the sin unto death. The problem with that is that it makes the sin unto death here lessness. And I've got news for you. Even though some Christians, it's kind of hard to find their fruit, every Christian does have fruit. Every true Christian, to begin with, has to have the fruit of faith and the fruit of repentance. Without those, they can't be saved. So every Christian, what about the thief on the cross? He didn't have a whole lot of time to bear any fruit, did he? Well, he did. He had the fruit of repentance and the fruit of faith. And then he began to even witness to that other thief over there. And doesn't he bear fruit as we read his account? Every Christian does bear some fruit. So I really have a problem um, with that. Plus, also, if you just look at this, there is no evidence of this in life. It is not just great fruit-bearing believers who live to ripe old ages, is it? No. There's some people who produce much fruit and were taken early. Like James, the apostle, the first martyr. And, and, and Stephen, I mean the first apostle who was martyred. He bore a lot of fruit, James, the brother of John. And Stephen did, but they were taken early. It would make better sense to say that the not fruit branches represent true Christians who simply continue to bear very minimal fruit so that the vine dresser takes them away, either in an early death or just sets them aside and focuses his time on those who are producing fruit. Um, but the problem with that is that it doesn't say here every branch in me that beareth just a little bit of fruit he takes away or minimal fruit. It says every branch in me that beareth not fruit, no fruit, he taketh away. So problem with that one. There's another theory that says the discarded branches represent not the believer, but the believer's works. As we learn from Scripture, uh, all believers will be judged one day, not for our salvation, but for our works at the Bema Seat of Christ, right? The judgment seat of Christ. And some of our works will be burned up as wood, hay, or stubble. And yet we will be saved as so by fire, or whatever it says there. And so they say this isn't talking about the believer himself. It's talking about his works. Yet look at the wor- Lord's words here. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches, Talking to people, isn't he? He says uh, in verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. The branches are people. Clearly, they're people, not works. Furthermore, the works are represented in this parable. But the works are not represented by the branches. They're represented by the fruit. Exactly. They're in there, but they're the fruit. The works are the fruit, not the branches. So that one is eliminated. There is yet another... Are you you getting tired yet? Brain's getting sore? There's yet another interpretation that says the Greek word for taken away, eri, 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 can also mean lifted up, which it can. It can mean either taken away or lifted up. So... This interpretation says that the not fruit branches, those who aren't producing any fruit, 
are Christians who have stopped producing fruit. They had to have some fruit, right? Repentance and and a, a faith, at least. So, the, but they've stopped producing fruit. So they are lifted up by the vine dresser. We have vines on our property, and sometimes those vines, you know, grow and they get on the ground. You got to go and you lift them up and you tie them back to the to the fence. So the vine dresser picks the branches up, lifts them up, so that he can then cleanse and pr- prune them, so that they will bring forth fruit. Problem, however, with this is that the branch, it doesn't say here that the branch stopped bearing fruit, does it? It says no fruit, not bearing fruit. How can a true Christian, Christian not bear any fruit? It's impossible. I've told you that already. There has to be some fruit. Some fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all that kind of stuff, and fruit of faith, fruit of repentance. So, But this says it didn't stop. It just says there is no fruit. Furthermore, and you have to think about this, but there are two subjects in verse 2, and there is a conjunctive word and that combines the, that uh, puts those two together. It separates the not fruit branches from the fruit-bearing branches. So here's what it... If you want to take eri to mean lifted up, it would have to say this. Look at verse 2. It would have to say this. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he lifteth up and he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. That, if it said that, I could say, okay, I'll go along with that, even though it's hard to think that a branch, it doesn't say stop bearing fruit, it says no fruit. But the problem is, it says, it has two, two subjects. It has every branch that doesn't bear fruit, and then it has branches that do bear fruit. So it says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Period. And then we go on to another subject. So if you say lift it up, it would have to say, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he lifteth up. Period. And then you say, well, that doesn't make sense. He didn't go on to do anything to it? No, he just lifted it up. So it doesn't really work. And then it talks about the branches that bear fruit, and the ones that bear fruit, he purchased them. So you can go with that one if you want to, but I see some real difficulty there. Now, another interpretation of the fruitless branches is that they symbolize professing only Christians. Now, we've already considered the Lord's statement here in light of Old Testament scriptures, right? We spent a lot of time in the beginning doing that. The vine symbolizes Israel corporately as a nation. They were in, there were in Israel, right, both believers and unbelievers. Would everybody agree? In Israel, there were believers and there were unbelievers, and uh, we talked about that in Romans 11. And the branches that were broken off of the olive tree were taken away because of unbelief. They were on the vine, on the, bran- on the tree, but they were taken off because of unbelief. Um, a person could easily have been a part of the nation of Israel, part of the vine, the original vine, and yet not have been a true Israelite. And that's exactly the meaning of Romans 9, 6, where it says, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. You know, it says in the Lord's letters to the seven churches, 
To begin with, John, while he was there on the Isle of Patmos, had a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ. And where was he standing? In the middle of seven candlesticks. The seven candlesticks represent his church corporately. He's in the middle. And yet he says to some of those churches, some of the members, some of the look like they're on the, on the vine, look like they're in the church branches. He says, repent or else like to the church of Ephesus, those of you who have lost your first love, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick and take it away and remove you. And he says to the church of Sardis, which is the dead church, he says to those who don't really believe, repent or else I'm going to come as a thief in the night and take you away. And he says to the church of Laodicea, which is full of false branches, he says, uh, repent or, you know, you make me sick. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And this this is uh, similarly, we find that there can be in the church corporately wheat growing alongside of tares. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? And you can't tell the two apart until the end when they finally mature. And then you can see the difference. So a person can be a part of Christendom, just like a person could be a part of Israel, without truly belonging to Christ. And who was just such a person? Judas Iscariot. We not only need to look at this analogy here in light of Old Testament scriptures, but we also need to look at it in light of what was going on in the immediate context. Besides Jesus being the true vine and his father being the uh, vine dresser, there were other characters involved in the drama that unfolded that very night that he gave this analogy. There were 11 true believers. And verse 3 says that they were already clean. Catheroi, they were already clean through what? The word Christ had spoken to them. Remember he said this when he was washing their feet. He said, uh, you don't need a bath all over, you just need your feet washed because you're clean already. And then he had to say, but not all, didn't he, back there, because Judas was still with them. Here he doesn't have to say, you know, you're clean, but not all, because Judas is gone by now. So they're already saved, you know, these guys are saved. But, so there were 11 fruit-bearing branches in this scenario, but there had been a false believer among them for some three years. Judas Iscariot had appeared to be just like the other disciples. Didn't he? Totally appeared to be like the others. He had given every appearance of being a branch in the vine. And yet he never bore any real fruit. Not even the fruit of faith. Not even the fruit of repentance, did he? The only thing he ever ever did was for himself. Greed, not God, ruled his heart. He was not a true believer who lost his salvation. Judas was never a believer at all. And he pictures all those professing believers who superficially attach themselves to the church called tares and appear at least for a while to be true branches, but actually they are strangers to Christ. They are lost and they have always been lost. He says, every branch in me, he's saying, I am the vine. It's an analogy, a vine. If he had just been talking to his men and he had talking about being in Christ, that would be one thing. But here he's using an analogy just like Israel had branches that were broken off. He's talking about himself as a vine with false branches, you know, branches that can be grafted on. If they don't take, I mean, they look for a while like they're part of the vine, don't they? But if, have you ever grafted a branch on? If it doesn't take, what happens? It dies. 
It dies. It doesn't produce any fruit, and it's a dead stick sticking out of the, the vine that eventually has to be taken away. And that's probably the best interpretation of all in my, in my mind. And yet there is that seeming problem, you know, with the fact that he did say, in me. Um, but we could, if we think of it in terms of Israel, you know, for not all Israel are really Israel, and remember that there is a church and, and there are tares in the church, we can, we can use it. And Vine's Expository Dictionary says this. I did look this up because I wanted to make sure about that word, take away. It says this, that John 15, 2 is not speaking of members of the true body of Christ, but those who are merely professed believers giving appearance of being joined to the parent stem like a graph, which being inserted does not abide, does not take, and therefore is eventually taken away. Well, that's enough about the branches. Now that you're thoroughly confused, you can go home and read more and make your own decision, but let's discuss real quickly, because we're out of time, the role of the husbandman, because his care of both the vine and the branches is extremely critical. This role speaks of God's loving care for both his beloved son, the vine, and his people. God the Father lovingly watched over his son as he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And he has the same loving care for all of the branches on the true vine. And this is why he takes away fruitless branches. It's so that... uh, They won't rob the other branches, the good branches, of any sunlight or life-giving sap and thereby make the entire vine less productive. You know, if you have a church with a lot of dead wood in it, it's a poor testimony to the community, is it not? Be better for that church to remove the dead wood so that others could benefit more and get more life-giving sap. Anyway, so they rob the other branches of the, um, the life. So it's necessary to remove them. And, and besides that, dead wood can easily breed disease and insects, like a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. So the vine dresser is constantly cutting off the fruitless branches so that the sap can fully concentrate on the fruit-bearing branches and so that diseases will not spread. And, of course, the husbandman also prunes... Not only does he cut off the dead wood, but he also prunes the fruit-bearing branches so that they will do what? Produce more fruit. The other day, my husband went outside that warm day, that one warm day we had, and he started pruning some of our bushes and trees and things like that and roses. And, um, and, and it's very important that you know what you're doing. He stopped with the roses because he wasn't quite sure how to cut them and everything. And he uh, you know, might make a mistake. Good thing about the true vine dresser is he never makes mistakes. But the vine dresser, God, didn't hi- notice he didn't hire out others to do this tedious work of pruning. He did it himself. He does it himself. He takes the time and effort to tenderly, patiently, lovingly care for the fruit-bearing branches. And this process, by the way, involves all fruit-bearing branches. If you are a true Christian, you can expect to be pruned. In one way or another, it says every branch that beareth fruit, he purges. So don't just think you're the only one being snipped and trimmed and cut. (laughs) Every branch. We all have our uh, pruning process. And this was the most important part of producing vines and, and, and the crop, you know, the grapes. 
If a vine dresser didn't properly prune the vines, he could destroy an entire vineyard, an entire crop. That's why even today, vineyard growers today across this world will spend a lot of money on training their pruners. They need to learn exactly where to cut, what angle to cut. You know, sometimes you're even supposed to cut above a certain leaf, like a leaf that has a stem that has five leaves on it and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and every plant is different. Um, Where to cut, how much to cut, and even what angle to cut. And, of course, human vine dressers can make mistakes. I remember one time, this was years ago, I asked my husband to go out and trim this bush at the corner of our house. Oh, my. When I went out several hours later, I about had a heart attack. He didn't trim it. He butchered it. There was nothing, I mean down to a little tiny thing and it took like five years for that to grow back i didn't say butcher it i said trim it oh and i love that bush but it's it's back it's it's healthier than it ever was but (laughs) it did take some time Mm -hmm. and but the good news for christians is that the our vine dresser the our vine is christ and our vine dresser is god the father and he never ever makes any mistakes so when he's cutting trimming and doing what he does on us he knows exactly what he's doing but that doesn't mean that the pruning process doesn't hurt. What do you think the branch could would say if it could talk? Ouch! Oh, that hurts so bad. Why me? <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? Why don't you pick on those other guys, you know, the other branches? It, it hurts. The pruning process hurts. I mean, cut, pinch, prune, snip, trim. That's not a lot of fun for the branch. But it would be worse if the branch was ignored and just left to itself to have its own way and grow in whatever wild fashion and direction it wanted. It would never bear as much fruit as it does when it is properly pruned. You see, it is because the Lord God genuinely does care for us, those who truly abide on his Son, that he prunes us. He prunes us in order to encourage us to produce more more fruit. Without it, we would remain little more than immature branches, spiritual babes who produce nothing more than tiny little flavorless grapes. So God helps us. He aids our spiritual maturity when he removes superficial and diseased things in our lives that will inhibit and distract our growth. You know, there's a lot of things in our lives that need to be snipped off so that we will instead do what? Focus more on abiding in the vine. Through all the trials and hardships and even loss of loved ones, he's narrowing our focus. To the vine. You see, what is the vine dresser all about? He is all about the business of strengthening both the quality and the quantity of our fruit. He wants us to free, be freed from those things that would drain our lives and our energy and our time so that we will concentrate more fully on the primary purpose for our being. Why are we here? I mean, he could have just, once we were saved, take us back to be with him in, or take us to be with him in heaven. He leaves us here. What's our primary purpose? To glorify him through bearing fruit for him. More fruit and much fruit. So, no, and no believer escapes the pruning process. That's a warning. Every branch. And why is that? Because there is no believer the Lord doesn't love. Isn't that the same way it is with us? He prunes his children because he loves us. Don't we do the same thing with our children? We prune them. We prune them off of thing, you know, from things that are harmful to them. We're always cutting and snipping and trimming our children. No, don't do this. You shouldn't do that. Da, 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 da. And we chasten them. Because we love them, don't we? 
And so he does the same thing. It's fantastic to think that the one who runs the entire universe, you think God has a lot of work to do? A lot of responsibility? (laughs) Putting it mildly. Yet the one who runs the entire universe takes the time to be concerned with our individual pruning process. That's, That's amazing. And it's also good news to find that he does not merely always have to resort to a pruning knife. Oh, thank you, Lord. You know, my husband always says, help me learn this lesson, Lord, so I don't have to have the Jonah experience. You know, we don't always have to have the snipping cutting. If, if we'll be smart and abide in the vine and learn our lessons quickly, we could just be purged. Actually, we would miss this if we didn't, again, emphasize the word purge is katharoi or katheri. <laughs> it means cleansed. And that seems strange to us that a vine dresser would clean with water every branch on the vines. But that's what they used to do in, in Israel before they had insecticide sprays and antifungal uh, sprays and things like that. The vine dresser very meticulously would take every branch and clean it with water so that he would clean off all the moss that might grow on it and all, you know, to get rid of all the insects and the little diseases. What a tedious process, but what loving care. Sometimes we just need to be washed. We don't always have to be cut with the knife. But you know what both the knife and the pruning process and the washing of the water, what both of those symbolize? How, are we, how do we grow as Christians? How do we produce fruit? You know you cannot produce fruit for the Lord apart from this book. The knife, the word, is a two-edged sword. That's the pruning knife. When we read this book, are we pruned? Yep. Oh, ah, if I'm going to obey the Lord, I can't do that. Cut, cut, snip, snip. And we're washed through the word, the water of the word. And so that's how we produce much fruit. And this is exactly what we're going to look at, Lord willing, when we come back after our break. When we look how to produce much fruit, look at verses 7 and 8 with me. If ye abide in me, and my what abide in you? My words abide in you. And then ye shall ask whatever you will, and it shall be done unto you. There's the fruit. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. The way we bear fruit. Do you want to bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit? The way we do it is exactly what we're doing here this morning. We let the words of Christ, the word of God, abide in us, flow through us, and just nourish us. And the more it flows through us and is in us, the more we... We don't even have to think about producing fruit. It will just happen. Much fruit. That's what I want. I know know that's what you want with your life is to produce much fruit for him. So keep abiding in his words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of sharing your life as branches. But also we think about the very important responsibility of abiding. Lord, help us to all continue to abide in you by having your words abide in us. And Father, we have looked at some difficult passages this morning, especially that one about the fruitless branches, and some of our minds are sore from thinking about which interpretation might be right, but that's not also important. The only thing that really ultimately is important that each is, is that each of us genuinely search our own lives, examine our own hearts, and make sure that we are true branches that we are producing fruit. Help us to see that we have fruit in our lives or else do something about it and get saved today. 
Lord, help not one of us be taken away and cast into the fire. I pray that not one of us here this morning would be a false branch like Judas and experience the second death. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have had together this morning. I pray your blessing on every woman for the next two weeks. Help her to be salt and light and to bear fruit for you in in our absence from one another. And then we pray that you'd bring us all back in two weeks, ready to go again in your word and loving you more and serving you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.